Hey everyone, this is Nick Romolini, and welcome to the first episode of The Blank Page. This podcast is about creativity and neuroses and the intersection of the two. I plan to focus on screenwriting primarily, and hopefully we'll be able to invite other artists to come and talk about their experience with creativity and neuroses. The Blank Page, to me, is the ultimate representation of infinite possibility and simultaneous crippling anxiety and those will be the sort of themes that I plan to explore on this show. The first conversation is with Dan Shirley, a writer and journalist and a dear friend of mine. We recorded this conversation in the middle of August in LA's first major heat wave of 2020 He was finishing up a master's program in Gainesville, Florida at the time of this recording. So he was having his own experience with heat and, of course, the COVID pandemic is underlying everything this year. There was a mosquito biting me for the entire 90 minutes that we were recording. So the occasional slap you'll hear is me trying to kill it. I humiliatingly misused the word craven many times and I've been thinking about it ever since which is a little bit of a glimpse into my psyche. This episode kind of serves as an introduction to who I am and my ethos I guess. We discussed academia, we discussed my blue collar roots, his roots, being Italian American, neuroses of course, insecurities, feeling like a fraud, We talked about video stores from the aughts, we discussed masculinity, and we had a bit of a discussion about my history, my 20s. Dan and I spent a lot of time together in my early to mid-20s, which were particularly tumultuous, and we started to explore that a little bit. A plane flew over at the very end, fittingly. There were no planes for the duration of the podcast until the very end, so I guess that's it. Enjoy the show, and thanks for tuning in. Here's my conversation with Dan Shirley. How goes it? About 73 degrees, approaching 100 for today, and the next seven days or something outrageous. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. We just came off of a week of, 100 plus heat index yeah i mean i can't and you have the the swamp the swamp oh, yeah. humidity oh yeah the the slow roast right yeah here it's like you're in an oven in a strange way you know because it's dry heat so yeah but there it's like you're in a a sauna in which someone just keeps pouring water on the rocks you know there's always that <laughs> right. guy in the sauna I think I would prefer the oven because then you could like chop up some mushrooms and peppers and onions, <laughs> sprinkle a little thyme on it yeah, from exactly. the garden. <laughs> I don't fuck with saunas. Yeah, and I always found the steam room to be more palatable because there's something about the wet heat that you can almost breathe better in a way. Yeah. Like the dry heat can sort of choke you. Right, which would explain why so many old people come here to die. (laughs) Right. 
because it's comfortable. Right, it's a comfortable it's easy death. Easy on the lungs. It is straight. I mean, I guess when they come out here to die, they're coming to usually the coast. I guess so. They have the the sort of more more humid microclimate out there by the coast, as opposed to central LA or literally the rest of the greater Los Angeles area that just bakes like like some sort of desert that it is. <laughs> have you read Nathaniel West yet? No. The Day okay. of the Locusts. Yeah. I feel like every every LA hipster should have read that just to just to kind of shit on LA while you're <laughs> making a go of it. I don't know. Perhaps I've shied from it because I'm not that interested in the uh, in the shitting anymore. Maybe I just want to embrace LA um, in in an earnest way. Nightmare place that it is. Yeah. I think I read it when I was in, maybe I was in Oakland or San Francisco. He's he's mostly shitting on like the older generation of aspirants who who were like trained in vaudeville by lax and were trying to break into the movie biz. The biggest problem for me about L.A. is the deep white supremacist roots, obviously. You know, this being the sort of hoped paradise for midwestern whites right it's strangely segregated for such a giant city that has so many different cultures i don't know it's it's alarming obviously but it's and it's disheartening and it's also confusing yeah we have the same thing here of course in the south (laughs) (laughs) i think a lot of didn't a lot of uh, southerners settle in la did I just I, make that up? I don't know. Um, we'd have to turn to an L.A. historian for that. Yeah. Sociology is not my, my strong suit. In. <laughs> what, what, to me, what to me is first thing in the morning. <laughs> I mean, it's first thing in the morning for me, too. I was like, 8 a.m. will be great. Like, I'll get this. <laughs> I'll have this call. Like, because, you know, it's going to be really hot. And then I'm going to fucking have to take the kids somewhere to, like, beat the heat because there's no central air conditioning. And um, that's my child screaming. Are you yeah, out I just, there, Dad? I just, I just heard one of them. <laughs> it's a circus. Um, it's a real fucking circus. Um, but, yeah, but then I was like, I haven't even had my second cup of coffee yet. So hopefully this is coherent. I'm still working on my first. Oh, wow. At 11.06 a.m. See, this is the luxury of the, like, the mid-30s single, <laughs> or other, I, I don't know how you, childless, I guess, is how you describe it. But it it's vexing to me. I had a friend the other day text me and be like, I'm really just embracing the, the do-nothing component of this quarantine and really just trying to work on aspects of myself that I've long overlooked. And I'm like, motherfucker, the luxury that you have to do that. And I'm like, of course, everybody's reality is their own. And I chose these shackles. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't really think of them as shackles, but, you know, 11 a.m. First cup of coffee. Fucking remarkable. How late were you up last night? I was I was up until three watching a documentary, watching an interview with Shane Bauer about the private prison system. Wow. And this is. We always find like a a hard hitting doc 
to keep us up at night. And then we will have a we'll talk we'll have the what can be done conversation at like three thirty. Wow. And then we'll have we'll have the I'm not doing my part conversation at mm-hmm. four. <laughs> <laughs> That's when it gets like a little self loathing and then puts yeah. you right to sleep. Exactly. <laughs> That's incredible. So you so this is like your schedule is like 11, yeah. 10, 11 a.m. wake up and then awake until 3, 4 a.m. Yeah, I mean, like, when I... Because I drink too much coffee during the day. Right. So I'm up late. And then I'm exhausted in the morning. And I'm usually... I'm typically during this time, which I've kind of... I've carved out for myself as reading and writing time. Okay, it's the most selfish thing I do. and And... But it's completely essential to what I'm trying to do as a writer. But often I'm just too exhausted to even make use of this time. This time in the morning is what you've carved out for reading and writing? Yeah. Got it. And it could be two hours. It could be. And if if I'm in a writing flow, then I could I could go into the the afternoon which is which I I see as a I now see as a huge luxury, but I've been in this grad school footing for the last couple of years, so that's right. that's doable. Now since I started working again in the real world with a big boy job and <laughs> and uh, money worries creeping into that time, you know, there's there's not you have to steal yourself to to actually like accomplish anything. And then I'm still working at 3 p.m. And Leah's like, um, weren't you supposed to pick up the cats at the vet or you know, like <laughs> a, mil- a million other things? If I had children, I mean, it would be, I wouldn't even be, you know, I wouldn't be able to sit that long. But it's not even good to sit that long because because now I'm like, editing shit to death and uh, trying to force something to take shape because I'm feeling that I'm feeling a little bit of that heat. Yeah. That's the strangest thing about this moment in time. I haven't worked, you know, since March and I, you know, I have the kids, so I guess that's sort of a job that I'm doing. But, you know, I can't imagine feeling this sort of drive to create and drive to get, like, work done and write things and to also have to juggle, like, a job job. And, though, I say all that, and in times when I'm, like, gainfully employed as, you know, an editor, I I have more systems in place and I'm way more mentally organized to get things done i think yeah it sounds like and we've spoken extensively about this the day job kind of gives you a pivot i mean it really it really it can really save you from yourself um not for everyone but speaking for myself uh, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to be working full time and 
and struggling against that because then you're hitting up against limited mental resources. Right. Uh, but yeah, having some kind of job to pivot to, um, for me, it solves the, it solves a lot of like anxiety problems. The, the number one thing I look for in a job is security. Like I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't need to get too excited about, about what right. I'm doing <laughs> because I know I have this other thing that's more important to me right. and rewarding and so forth. But yeah, that pivot can really like, and then you have to organize your time more efficiently when you're not working. Right. But that, but having the work, I think having to organize yourself to get, I mean, for me, you know, I'll have to go to a post-production office or whatever, but like having to organize my day around that, it kind of switches my mind into a different gear and allows me to be more organized in the rest of my time. I mean, it's only during those times that I'm, you know, daily waking up at 5 a.m. doing, you know, 30 minutes of yoga, 30 minutes of meditation before anybody in the house is awake. It's very rare in a time of sort of drought of that kind of work that I'm um, doing those things and though I think that's the goal right I mean if my goal is to be a screenwriter director like whatever the thing is that I ultimately want where I'm not serving where I'm not you know serving someone else's whims yeah. um, I need to create more systems and I need to be more organized like I I need to create this for myself and get out of my own way um, and I don't know I, yeah I don't know yeah, that makes sense. I, I've been thinking about that because um, um, we were taking personality tests at 4 a.m. last night. <laughs> Which, I almost spit my coffee out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, so what, uh, during the interview, Sean Bauer, who went undercover uh, in this private prison in Louisiana, he had to take a personality test in order to get the job. And it turns out that he had some like some some like moderate authoritarian tendencies and mostly like supportive, empathetic qualities. So we were like, oh, let's take this test. Let's see if we're we're prison guard material. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then we just went on like this. We I mean, I took like 12 personality tests last night. Um, and I. I uh, I realize that you know as th these things like often just tell you they'll like tell you that what you want to hear about yourself. But um, when I was I I did notice uh, like I wanted to answer the the qu the questions are like do you plan everything out? Do you consider all the angles before you make a decision and and I was like, yes, yes, I do. I know I that this is true about. <laughs> I know it's not true about me, but but it's becoming. I'm 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 getting more organized and in all all aspects of life and and I yes I'm, and I, and I feel like that's essential for like having a creative life where where you're kind of the boss. Uh, it's like run. It's like running a business. As, right. As, as um, cynical as that may sound. 
But that's the whole thing about it, right? I mean, I remember when I first sort of realized that this is an entrepreneurial pursuit, a lot of my realities were sort of shattered, I guess, in a weird way. Like my sort of like, well, no, I'm an artist, so I'm not a businessman. I'm not like a craven. Because, you know, I associate entrepreneurship with like craven sort of predatory capitalism, right? And that's not the reality. Those two things can exist. You know, you can be an entrepreneur that that isn't craven, I guess. Um, But it's strange to think of creativity in that way but ultimately it is i mean if you want to do it and make money doing it you have to create a commodity that is going to make somebody else money like that's the bottom line i mean like there's there's definitely a cottage industry of people who take it the last mile and package it and turn it into a commodity right but just in terms of like giving yourself the basis for operations like cash flow, uh, time management, um, contacts, cultivating relationships. Like these are all things that any business person would be doing, uh, maybe like in a consultancy or whatever. Like let's, you know, like pick a non nefarious industry. Right. Uh, let's say you're trying to be a, a commercial illustrator or something. You're still doing the same things, but and then the and then the creative stuff that you pour into it is that's that's like the that's the unknown value. I mean, you could never anticipate that or quantify that or but but yeah, you can create the habits where where you can capture that or you know or try to try to get it down and then shape it into something eventually that's like resembling a marketable product. I I'm just I'm disgusted that these words are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I'm, I'm thirty I'm thirty six years old and I've been I've been at this for like, you know, I mean writing for a decade, but right. but other other thing music for for much longer. Two decades and my, probably. Yeah, ever, ever since I came out of the womb. Right. So to speak. I mean. But all of that stuff, but but there was always this thought like, oh, someone else will do that. Someone else will market this. I'm I'm just like, I'm so over overwhelmed and and inspired by life and experience. I'm I'm too busy having experiences, too busy, um, you know, chasing chasing inspiration and and madness and magic right i have to be the kerouac like somebody else can be the one who's pushing me out into the world yeah i mean i was i was i was a reluctant i reluctantly um came to realize that i was more of a ginsburg (laughs) (laughs) i wanted to be on the road and picking grapes and salinas but was more suited for the library. I always thought I was so that I had such manic and magnetic energy that I was Dean, but then I realized <laughs> that I was just Jack and would have definitely drank myself to death and like <laughs> just recorded all the all the magic that was happening around me, but would have been dead ultimately, not like Dean just settled down with a family by, you know, by the whatever, by the time of Big Sur. 
But 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 Neil Cassidy died of exposure. You knew right. that, right? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. No, he died a worse death than Kerouac. <laughs> he just like walked off into a field somewhere during a blizzard. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Well, you, you got you got to live a certain way till the death, I guess. <laughs> I have this strange thing, too. I mean, and this is something that I just keep working on, I guess. Um, but I, I definitely have that sort of voice in the back of my mind whenever I fully embrace this stuff. And I don't know if it's coming from a blue-collar family, from a blue-collar um, community, um, or what exactly it is. But I, I definitely have this sort of what do you think you're better than me voice you know that's always talking whenever i'm like embracing a real artistic pursuit in earnest you know like i just think of people's voices from my from my past and i just think of you know me talking about writing a movie or wanting to make a movie and i just think of something somebody being like what do you oh what do you think you're special like you should be out here digging these ditches with us you know yeah, I don't know if you have that or if you or if you grew up with any of that, but that is definitely something that persists to this day that I have to work on to push through this stuff. No, I was I was fortunate that both of my parents the the blue collar thing wasn't central to their identity. My dad is a musician; he wanted to be a music teacher. Um. He fell into a blue class lifestyle. My mom rarely worked and uh, was content to raise children and and just kind of have a domestic, a quiet domestic life. They never pressured me to um, one way or the other. Um, my grandfather, he he probably could have would have insinuated himself more in my thinking. Mm, but he died when I was in my early 20s. And he would always say things like, hey, Dan, while you're at Temple, why don't you go to the podiatry school? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, but Pop, I'm studying sociology. <laughs> 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 but there's money in feet, Dan. You know that. <laughs> there's always going to be money in feet. And I wasn't even really studying sociology. I was just, I was reading like whatever I, I thought was interesting. I, I took, I got more from the library reading French poetry or whatever. But, and, but I, to, to get back to your question, like I can't, no, I can't talk to my family or my extended family about what I'm doing. It just, it makes no sense to them. Right. Uh, so I just keep that to myself. And then I like, I, I don't, I don't anticipate like getting that validation from them. Like, Oh, you wrote a book. Congratulations. You're important. No, right. they'll, they'll never give a fuck. And, and I'm glad because, because they love me regardless of, of what I do in the world in terms of like status and accomplishment. The other problem I have, though, is like with with people that are sort of in my boat <clears throat> and and the sort of professionalized artist and the and the the career academic. I 
I don't want to become like them. Like we just we all just finish this program and and I hear everyone's like eager anxious to to finish a book. I'm working on my novella. I have to I have to drive to my second home uh in North Carolina to finish my novella and and I do ask that question of them what what makes you special and I I did I haven't really figured that I haven't seen that or and and it doesn't seem like I mean a lot a lot of people like I I totally get the impulse and and we all want to feel special and we all should feel special to some people or for some something we do well we want to be recognized for it but then it's like maybe but maybe it's not so important to 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 actually get that to 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 be to get that external validation maybe it won't even make a difference i'm kind of rambling here but i was just kind of incensed (laughs) (laughs) like People's self-importance, like, basically. Catch, yeah, just catching up with like people who are really, who were really indo- indoctrinated uh, in this in this writing program in the idea that what we're doing is important, right? And and uh, we're nothing without. We would be nothing without a book. Right. Like that's a, that's the path we're on. And if we, you know, um, anything else would be a kind of consolation i think about manual labor a lot i'm not gonna lie i think about (laughs) working construction jobs and i think about the satisfaction of accomplishing something in a day's work and then just going home and just being with your family i think about you know i mean generations of people before me that's what their life was there was no i'm gonna toil away at this Thing that needs to come out of my brain and my soul and my heart and whatever and until I get there I, I can't feel peace they were just like no nah, I'm gonna I'm gonna assemble these bricks in a way until something is built out of them and then I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna eat bread <laughs> but I do think of sort of the the, the thoughtlessness of that in a, in a positive way um, but yeah I'm not there's no I'm not entitled to tell my story I'm not entitled to put a a story into the world but I am compelled to do it I don't think that the world will stop spinning if I don't do it or that I will have lived a meaningless life Um, yeah that's a strange one I feel like you have a certain pathology from the grad school thing that I I don't necessarily know if I can relate to because you've been so entrenched in it for the last couple of years. I mean, I'd be disgusted, I'm sure, and couldn't yeah. wait to get back to, you know, the exact type of people that I'm describing. Yeah, no, I would I would prefer to be among the, you know, the kind of people you're describing because like they can they can look you in the eye and you can you can have a real connection that you could break bread right. and and it's it doesn't matter where you stand in in like this rarefied culture uh that's that's all based on reputation and and your your latest offering whether it whether it 
cuts the mustard. Mm. Well, um, L.A. is, I mean, L.A. is is that every moment of every day yeah. with everybody you see. It's what can you do for me and what have you done last, basically. I mean, thankfully, I live in what's still something of a working class neighborhood, even though it continues to be gentrified by the minute it feels like even during five months of a pandemic um but yeah that that the it's the sort of down-to-earth component that is lacking as everyone tries to look at you as an angle to get to what they want to get to um yeah but but there are very few people that can actually get you anywhere right that's the thing that's why it makes no sense to be be in a a barrel of crabs with with um, people who are just sort of like you know more or less at the same level you are. Right. It's a barrel. Of, it's a barrel of crabs, and and I mean, it it was really difficult to be here for three years, and and to just have like your relationships be so tenuous right. because it's it's all like um it all it all comes down to where you stand with the people who matter so to speak well right and then uh, for me at least with anxiety then i think of every single thing that i said to that person that i perceive as mattering you know and then i pour over how that person thinks of me which you know is something i do constantly at, anyway is just unending concern about what everyone thinks about me but when it comes to the person who could actually elevate me at least or so I think you know it becomes this neurotic obsession with like not fucking <laughs> that up you know it's just right. not it's not a tenable way to live yeah well it's yeah I, I guess it comes with the territory right I could have chosen to dig ditches. You could have. Or you could have been a bricklayer. I should have been. I should have <laughs> been. I got these hands. They're made to just move bricks around, not to hold a pencil. Could you... Could you, um, you could be the first artisanal bricklayer in L.A. <laughs> you could be molding, molding bricks in your backyard. I've actually... Eight. I've thought about building a brick oven in the backyard to make pizza <laughs> and I've looked at plans, yeah. but the thing is as much as I am, am cut from that cloth, I have none of the actual skills because they died, you know, the generation before me. So like I should be doing it ostensibly, but I have literally no idea. And I think about my two sons and I'm like, you know, I, I mowed lawns for summers when I was, you know, a teenager like what what and my dad you know owned businesses so I, I like worked retail stores and things like that like what are these kids gonna do what are they even gonna know how to do and like I don't know there's this one part of me that's like man they're gonna miss out on knowing what it's like to be on a fucking landscaping crew and then there's this other part of me that's like no they won't be missing out on anything they'll just be able to <laughs> fully embrace whatever the thing is that they really are drawn to you know like i didn't need to work in those warehouses to to you know 
get anywhere further in my mental makeup. Although I, yeah. I, I, although I still find myself feeling most at home in those. Anyway, I don't want to keep dwelling on this idea, but no, I would, I want to pick it up because you just, you just reminded me of something, like, just having had that experience working in warehouses, factories, even restaurant work, mm-hmm. where you're just sweating it out. Yeah. Um, all that stuff. It was. It wasn't an option. Like, the. I mean, that's just what I needed to do to to pay the bills for a while. Um, and I think it's good experience. I think it 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 gives us a window into working class lives, and the we rarely hear stories about working class people written by working class people right who are who have lived it and i think i think that alone is is kind of some sometimes gives me reassurance that that what i'm doing is important um and that if i can if if i can speak if I can speak for more than just myself, then then I'm good. But if if you don't get what the story that you need to tell out into the world, <laughs> you know you got to go to your second home in Carolina and finish your novella because you're speaking for more people than yourself. No, I totally understand what you're saying though. I'm obviously just breaking balls, but <laughs> well, you can't help it. <laughs> I do agree. I mean, these are, for me personally, like these stories, these experiences are what shape and influence everything that I do and bring that perspective to everything that I do. <clears throat> it is strange to like straddle that line that I always feel like I'm straddling of like, <sighs> I'm an Italian American from Philly. Like my last name is Romolini. Like, what do you think people think when they see me and meet me? And then I'm like, no, but I did really well on my SATs. Don't you understand? And like, I was just literally like watching, you know, the international collection on Criterion. Like, don't you like, don't box me in as just like some Goomba from, you know, the street. But I always feel that, you know, and I feel like that's how I'm still perceived. Um, which is strange. Maybe if my last name was Shirley, I wouldn't feel that way. Well, it's kind of interesting with our generation. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of great artists from the the last two generations came from immigrant families, and they they still had accents, and they still um, had some part in the culture of where they came from. I'm thinking of like Jonas Mikas. I mean, even Andy Warhol came from a, a poor Czech family in Pittsburgh, and he changed his name a little bit um, to try to to maybe try to fit in a little better. But he was. But um, what am I getting at here? I feel like there's even there's our culture has become even more become so superficial that. Everyone's starting to talk the same and 
apply the same varnish and the same Instagram filter. There's right. this homogenization happening. Right. So in the past, I would it 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 felt like it seemed like people could be more from immigrant backgrounds could be more themselves. And uh, I think I think it's a source of strength to to still be rooted and and to for that to still be palpable to people. Like people can people can tell you come from somewhere by the way you talk. I slip into my accent when I talk to my parents, but and I used to be sort of I used to feel. Uh, a need to kind of disguise that more, but I I don't feel it as much these days. Maybe maybe it's because I I feel a little more established, and uh, and I feel I feel less vulnerable to um, a kind of class based um, condescension. Well, it's funny you should say that, right? The way that you would sort of switch your accent or fight your way out of your accent. I mean, cause that's what my grandparents did. My great grandparents did like they were forbidden from speaking Italian in the house. Like they wanted to become American as quickly as they possibly could because they didn't want to be pigeonholed as or pegged as what they were. Um, obviously that was for significantly more survival reasons, I guess, than us today. But, what you're doing is a version of the same thing by dropping the accent. And, you know, I mean, I've thought about that, especially in LA, like most people don't sound like me and, um, don't present the way I am. And that's okay. Um, I will be polarizing to some and that's fine too. Um, but that instinct to like switch it and, and, speak more eloquently and you know not you know whatever the thing is I can't even do it anymore I could try to speak about the accent. <laughs> I can't even really do it anymore because it's been so many years of not trying but that impulse I think is rooted in that same thing that happened when people came to America like become American as quickly as possible and I think what you're kind of alluding to is like our generation me you because we're third or fourth generation immigrants now like we have just been indoctrinated into you know this sort of wonder bread mayonnaise society so like there are still immigrant stories that are being told and that are being celebrated but they're the new wave of immigrants you know and though i still culturally hold on to a lot of what being italian is and i won't let that go try try as uh, I may or try as others may wish me to perhaps, but um, I don't know. It's, it gets thinner and thinner, my tether to it, as fewer and fewer people feel it, unless you're entrenched in a, in a strong community of that that has remained unchanging. And then, of course, you run into all these other issues of, um, I don't know, this is sort of off the rails and we're just talking about identity at this point, but... Um, I get, I think it's important to the work. I do too. I think, I think of it as a source of all, all good things that come from the earth and come from 
just simple simplicity, uh, survival. I mean, that's where that ultimately, like, when my ancestors came out of Italy, they were completely destitute, but they had they had a rich culture intact, which they brought over here and tried to keep alive for a couple of generations. I mean, it's certainly died out. Um, if I now, if I was entrenched in a, a an Italian American community, say in South Philly. I I wouldn't be the person I am. I would be I would probably be a lot more narrow-minded, a lot more politically to the right. Um and I and if I wasn't, I would have to I would know I, I would have to leave because that's that community's become entrenched in a bad way. It's not keeping good aspects of the culture alive. It's just keeping the tribal thing going, which now which now identifies itself as anti-black. And anti people of color, anti feminist, anti gay, like all these things. Anti immigrant somehow, which yeah. is outrageous. Yeah, even anti immigrant. Like, you they were treat... immigrants. I don't, it's confounding. Yeah. One or two generations removed, and they can't see that Mexican Americans are in almost identical circumstances. Exactly. Uh, in that part of the country and, and throughout the country. I did leave that. I mean, exactly what you're talking about. Like, I did that leave that because as the person who wasn't that or who who straddled that line of, like, holding that identity but also s- sort of seeking more, I had to leave, you know? I mean, because otherwise if I had stayed there, I would have been the one ostracizing people like me. Right. Right? I mean, it gets to a certain point of – of generations of tribalism you're absolutely right where then you start rejecting the other in the same way your your people were rejected and it's it's it feels uniquely american i mean and obviously this expect the, the sort of american experiment hasn't been attempted elsewhere um but anyway what are you working on now I'm not really working on anything right now. That's another luxury of quarantine life. You can just work on nothing if you want. <laughs> I you could say I am working on nothing because I'm reading John Cage's uh, lectures on nothing, and his his book Silence. I have my book, my Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind here. Um, I. You know, I, yeah, I just I just stopped work on a a project that I thought was going to be a novella or a, a book length work, and it turned out to be forty pages, forty really condensed pages, and I'm okay with that. Um, I I sought the advice of of a poet who whose work I respect, and he he was like, yeah, keep the forty pages if you tried to turn that. I had other stuff, like 100 pages. If I tried to turn that in a, into a book, the 60 pages would have felt like um, filler, make weight. So I just, I think, I, I think I'm at the point where I can just accept that there's a lot of cruft that needs to be left by the wayside. And I'm just going to, I'm going to move forward. I don't know what I'm moving forward into. 
it could be music it could be something entirely different it, it's a nice feeling to not have a a a project that's like structurally flawed and and all-consuming weighing on my mind as it has been the last couple of months but i'm i'm getting excited stirrings of of possibilities with film and music i find that i go in waves of of those two things to vacillate back and forth between like a deep deep interest in one or the other and then it fuels the other like i spent probably two months of this quarantine just playing music writing songs recording like obsessing over that process and then like towards the end of that being like man i really need to need to because you know it's this unending burden that I put on myself but I'm like man I should really be writing a movie because I live in LA and I want to sell movies and make movies and whatever whatever I should really be channeling this energy that I this creativity that I have into making movies but like or writing a movie but you can't force it you know you just kind of have to take at least I find you have to just take what's coming and just run with it in the moment and though that can be sort of untenable for your future in some ways because I'm like well I don't know I always make the joke about like I'm not gonna sell the song about overdosing to California Pizza Kitchen and like live off the royalties whereas I could sell the movie and like actually make a living it's that strange thing of like the figuring out the art the art mixed with the money is really tough yeah I mean I would just I would just ask, I would be asking myself, which is the right form for this, this um, content and, uh, and not worry about which one could make money. Because if you find the one that, that if you find the, the perfect form for the content, it's going to be such a beautiful thing. It's going to be so powerful. It doesn't matter if it makes money, but it probably it will probably find people will find it interesting and it and it could could gain some traction. It's such a difficult thing to do. Yeah, you know, I have some friends who have just sort of like abandoned the pursuit, at least for now, and gone off and gotten, you know, MBAs and gotten jobs and finance and been like well you know I, I still do the creative thing and um, when I'm ready I'll make the movie and I'm like ah, I don't know though will you <laughs> no they will not they absolutely will not I mean I mean that MBA is sort of like you're, you're I mean that's a statement that you're making to yourself right and, and to the world right we, I mean, we make these statements in various ways. Some people get a face tattoo. Some people uh, resist a full-time job and, you know. I think about that too, though. Like, if my whole identity, if you Google me and, like, my whole identity online is, like, I'm an editor. I fucking cut this great marketing piece that helped sell the billion dollar box office Avengers movie like when how do I shift that and how do I get people to take me seriously as a filmmaker as a writer like 
And does that matter? I mean, it's not a face tattoo. It's not an NBA, you know, Nick Romolini NBA on my LinkedIn. But, like, even within the field that I want to ostensibly be working in, I feel already like I'm sort of viewed in a certain way. Can that guy write? Can that guy act? Can that guy direct? Because all I've seen are the things that he's edited. I mean, it doesn't really matter what Google thinks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really, it really just matters what, what maybe one or two or three people who could give you the green light would think. That guy who I hope I didn't fucking say the wrong thing in front of. <laughs> Essentially, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe the person escaping to Carolina to finish that novella does fucking know what they're doing. I don't know. No, no, they no. I, I would. I think I was trying to say like. You make make your short film and put it on put it on Vimeo, and if if one person likes it, and if that one person believes in you and has the resources to bring you to a wider audience, that's all you need. But the rest the rest, be it Google or um, the analog version, which would be like standing in the center of the room at a at an art opening and name dropping. Like that's all that's all smoke and mirrors that everyone's doing at a certain level. And it doesn't it doesn't mean shit. So you're telling me to stop worrying about what people think about me. Yeah. (laughs) You think you think that'll set me free? I'm telling myself that. I know. Thirty six years. Thirty six fucking years I've had to live with this. (laughs) (laughs) It would be really nice to just be set free from that. Um (laughs) obsessive negativity but you know i'm working with scott on it you know (laughs) once a week (laughs) once a week for an hour (laughs) every therapist is named scott it's the best therapist name i mean it's a fuck it (laughs) what else could he do (laughs) had to be a therapist (laughs) yeah so i mean so now you'll seamlessly I mean you'll so you'll so you'll leave a project by the side of the road and you will read about nothing literally for a while and um <laughs> ground yourself and then the next thing will just emerge. I hope so. I mean to get back to what you were saying about like how do you how do you become known as as the guy who does the guy who makes films? as opposed to the guy who edits films. There, there's a freedom in not being known in a particular field where you can just kind of try all kinds of things. No, nobody, nobody, nobody knows that I spent years um, trying to make music in, in various ill ill-starred outfits <laughs> populated by like bipolar friends and 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 foes <laughs> <laughs> but it, I and for a time I consider myself a failure like oh I, f- I failed in music um, and so I'll try writing now <clears throat> but the longer I'm on this planet the the, lo- the more I realize there, there could be a cycle 
coming around the bend where I just pour myself into music and just totally shed this or temporarily put aside this, this identity as a writer and just pour myself into music. And it could, it could just be uh, really simple phrases on a, on a nylon string guitar. Um, and when I find the right images to accompany that, that could, that could be something, uh, I, I don't know what it, what it could be, but I just have like these stirrings of, of new things that have nothing to do with what I'm doing now. Sometimes I use it as a way to distract myself from, from a really difficult project that I'm struggling with. Other times it's just like, well, maybe, maybe the time is right for this. Maybe I need to express something in this way. I can relate. I totally can relate. And I'm currently making a podcast to distract from the movie that I started writing last <laughs> week. But I don't think of it as necessarily a distraction. I mean, a part of me is like, okay, then now this is going to be more work and, and more time dedicated to this. But I'm also like, now I'm going to hold myself accountable to a degree. I'm, I, I have these conversations all the time. And, you know, there will be a certain amount of catharsis that comes out of it and really a certain amount of accountability. Like, I wrote four pages the other night. I have no idea what this movie's going to be yet, but I started it. I wrote the first scene. So, I mean, it's not page one, but it's somewhere in there. And um, now I'm talking to you about it. So now it's making it more real, I guess. <clears throat> What's it about? <laughs> That's the worst question I know. What's it about? <laughs> What's it about? What's it about? It's about my feelings. You would not. You would never understand. <laughs> but the world needs it. But the world will relate because they're universal. But you wouldn't get it. It's um, and this is sort of what makes this so difficult to like look this all in the face. Is like. It's autobiographical, you know, as sure. is most of what I do. And like, sure. I've mentioned this to you before, like coming from uh, here we go again, coming from like a blue collar. Really, it's being Italian. Like you don't talk about yourself. You certainly don't tell strangers about you, yourself. You don't talk about your mother to strangers or your siblings to strangers. Are you kidding me? That's like the most animal thing you could do. I mean, it's like breaking this code you know, mafia tropes or not, like, there still is, in my experience, like, Italians, they don't say any. You don't say anything about anything. Nobody's supposed to know anything about what happens inside the family. And, like, all of my shit is so, like, visceral, like, just, like, look at my raw flesh, you know? Um, and it flies in the face of what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. And then also talking to you about the process feels like it's something I shouldn't be doing either. Are you writing about your family directly? 100%. Okay. <laughs> I mean, names are changed, you know, but it's, it's uh, memoir-ish, I guess. Um, and that's the thing. I kind of don't really know what, what part of the what part of the biography is the movie I want to make right now. But I know there are movies in there, you know. I know that 
I know that the reason I absconded to Kansas City after living on on the floor of your basement for two weeks is probably related to something that happened when I was five through ten. And <laughs> I think I yep. could probably try to draw that parallel and tease that out in a screenplay. Oh, and it could be a road trip, too. Right. There could be a road trip. <laughs> could be a road trip or or more saliently it could be me smoking a cigarette in the bathroom of that southwest airline flight which during which like the flight attendant clearly knew what was happening and just kind of let me do it um the federal offense that i committed and thankfully wasn't (laughs) wasn't uh caught doing um i want to i do want to know about this period in your life which one, the Which Kansas I've, City one? I've sort, of, yeah, I've sort of mythologized in my own mind. But you lived part of it with me, sort of. Yes, but I, I didn't know where, I didn't know what you were experiencing <laughs> when you absconded to Kansas City and what that was like getting, getting uh, settled in there and. My own. Talk and, about and I know a fish you're on out a of water. Ride. Yeah emotionally yeah leading up to that and then all during that and then uh for the 10 years since that no not but for a long time after that and that's where it gets tricky for me like how do i drill down like what is the most maybe that's the movie maybe the movie starts with um you know me on a plane or something i don't know and maybe it's told in flashback i don't know but yeah that the six months that i spent in kansas city were fucking harrowing um as were most of my 20s and i don't know um i think that's when it gets it can get really hard for me to drill down to like what is the story that i actually want to tell right now and then and then of course there's the voice that's like why do you think your story needs to be told why but but i'm like well because i can fucking see it in a movie i know that if i saw these things in a movie that i would be fully locked in and i would be fully engaged with the content um, like I almost burned down my sister's house because I made like a fucking, um, remember how I used to light fires in coffee cans <laughs> indoors? Vaguely. We used to do it in the backyard of the 515, but I would also do it in basements and shit for warmth. Um, <laughs> no, it was insane. Anyway, I don't want to get too deep into it now, but, um, <laughs> but I had this thought the other night you know I was talking to my wife and just processing some you know feelings trauma from my youth and uh, I was like you know I just don't exactly know like what what the movie is and 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 what story I want to tell and she was like well why don't you just write one scene like don't think about what it's going to be in the bigger picture just sit down and write a scene And then write another scene and just see where it takes you. And I thought that was like, I don't know, it may seem pedantic to some, but I thought that that was really helpful advice to just write the thing that's in your brain and not really worry about how it fits into the bigger picture of the bigger thing until later. Yeah, totally. That's, I mean, that's the modern thing. I was, I was just reading John Cage on Eric Satie and he writes about how Sati just totally dispensed with transitions between parts of his his music, which no one was really doing. 
in the 19th century. And he, so he was sort of like even ahead of what people were doing in, in writing. And then that became the modern thing with pound and avant-garde poetry, just dispensing with transitions. Um, and the mainstream has sort of caught up with that. Like, I mean, I even see that in, in TV editing, like really quick cuts. Um, you know, you sort of have to recreate parts of the narrative. It's a great way to work too, to just have these like, glowing scenes and not have to worry about doing all of this like creating all the sign you that connects everything to get them connected yeah yeah it's when, it's crazy it gives the give the audience some credit too i feel like you know like i think that in not sorry i'll let you finish what you were saying no i think i was just like in lecturing mode <laughs> because i you referenced cage sati pound i was just waiting for more to come I'm waiting for for an audience of 19 to 23 year olds to assemble. <laughs> Perhaps they will. Perhaps they will. In television editing and in film editing, I think, like, and in storytelling in general, like, you need to give your audience some credit that they're going to understand it. And frankly, I feel like you need to be okay with people not understanding some things. Yeah. Um, if they're not crucial elements, I feel like that's what creating like a multi-layered thing is all about, right? I mean, there's deeper meanings, and though the surface meaning is enough. Yeah. Um, that was like fucking film school 102. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, um, and I think at this point, we might just be talking about, we might just be workshopping your screenplay. Sure. But, um, see, when I, when I picture you from that time period, and I know you don't have, you know, you don't have to be writing your life story. Like you could be fictionalizing and doing whatever. So feel free to like disregard all this. But I, like I, when I went out there to Kansas City to see how you were living and, and you picked me up at the airport, whiskey drunk. With Was your, I drunk when I picked you up? I think your shirt open to the gills. <laughs> to the belly button. A, to the belly button. <laughs> yeah, you were drunk. Fuck. <laughs> you, had a, you had a Jack Nicholson kind of persona mm -hmm. going on. Um, like 1970s, seven easy pieces style. I don't know if you remember that flick. Isn't um, it five easy pieces? Like, was it five easy pieces? Yeah. <laughs> like that, that new Hollywood thing. Right. I feel like if you did write the story of that time, it would be interesting to write it as just a guy who wants to make, a kid who wants to make movies and is playing out like a, a couple different tropes. Right. And he also has his real life and, and you know, like whatever he's dealing with. But... But yeah, it's just like he's living personas so that he could then write them later. <clears throat> sure, yeah. Yeah. That could be that could be really cool. And then you'd have this opportunity to do a kind of pastiche of different styles. Right. But I've already, I've already said too much. 
I I fucking hate workshopping. Well, because now people have ideas, and it's really like the film they want to make. Of course. And for me to hear all that now, I'm like, well, I didn't have that fucking idea, so now I can't use that idea because now it's his idea, and people will fucking think I'm a fraud for not being able to come up with the ideas on my own. And I think maybe that's just a function of never really being involved in like workshopping or brainstorming, and always being like. I need to fucking do all this myself in a dark basement. Um, but yeah, I, that is, that is interesting. That's a, that's a, that's a cool idea for, for a movie. Maybe mine, maybe not mine, but yeah, that, uh, you came to Kansas city, like only a couple weeks after I was there too, I think. Cause I moved in the middle of February and I think you came in March. I mean, granted it was only a six month tour, but like, a lot of shit happened after you, like you, you were just seeing the early on part. Like I got yeah. sober, I guess after you came. I think you even came out within two weeks of me moving there. Um. Yeah, I missed you. Yeah. I think I might. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that. Yeah, I thought you had been like sort of settled out there. No, because ta- was... I guess the passage of time is different when you're that young and stupid. Totally. <laughs> totally. Well, and we were living, like, this lifestyle at the time, like, or at least in my mind. I mean, it felt Kerouacian, except that I just stayed in Philly. And, like, you – it feels like you did shit. Like, I, your your trip to L.A. that, like, involved Mexico and whatever, like that. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there are little movies, at least scenes from movies in, in a lot of what we lived together as well. Yeah, I mean, it. I think I was probably trying to live out some beat fantasy. And the beats, the beats did have that Midwestern stopover, didn't they? Weren't they? Were they in Kansas City? I know they were in Denver a lot. It might have been. I know Denver for sure, but it might have been. There might have been some Kansas City action happening. Um. Yeah, and when I was out there too, I remember. Sorry, I just had a thought when I was out there, like. I wanted to get involved. I was like, shit, man, I could fucking buy like a farm out here for probably like a couple grand and like make Westerns. Like I had the craziest fucking ideas. Meanwhile, like I was, you know, drunk driving a pickup truck that didn't require a key to start. You just turn the ignition (laughs) with your hand and like, God forbid you ever locked the door. You know, you weren't getting in. There was no key to it. Um, but I was like, yeah, I'll just fucking build a studio <laughs> and make movies. <laughs> and like I was, you know, driving drunk to fucking MCI, I think is the airport at like 9 a.m. to pick you up, offering you whiskey like right when you got into the truck. <clears throat> were, were you slinging insurance door to door? The thing about <laughs> the thing about the insurance salesman component of that period of my life is that I never sold a single policy but (laughs) I I went out with like these two dudes like who you know were training me or whatever and we would just like hang it just felt like I was hanging out with dudes and then they would like sell the insurance and they would be like and here's how you do it and they'd be like now you go do it on your own and then I just never did it and got a job at a coffee shop but I will never forget those two guys that like I hung out with because I feel like that is what most of my life has been is just like gathering fucking material to tell a story. 
Yeah, you should write about those people. One of the guys was like, he was from like Branson, Missouri, and he was like a singer in addition to being an insurance salesman. Like he was in like some sort of fucking like honky-tonk like crooner thing. I, I, I can't even remember. I wish I had journaled that era a little better, um, you know, because so much is lost to the to the vanishing of time. Yeah. Oh wow, that that gap after you said vanishing of time, I thought you got disconnected there, but that was a nice, a nice bit of, a nice effect. It was accidental. I actually just didn't know what to say next, but let's call it profound <laughs> instead. Or maybe it's not that I didn't know what to say next. Maybe I'm always thinking that something needs to be said to fill the space, and I'm not good at just letting the space exist. Fucking neuroses, man. Yes. But I would, would um, the insurance gig reminded me of a film I saw, American Honey, made by a British filmmaker, I believe, who, who followed this crew of door-to-door salespeople. And they were mostly teenagers, and they lived out of hotels all around the Midwest. They were kind of scammy. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot what they were selling. Um, Shia LaBeouf acted in it. I don't know how you feel about him, but he was very good playing a a, conf- a sort of like pseudo confidence man. Uh, and there's a young teenage girl who's very charismatic as well in a quieter way. And they have like this little romance. But the filmmaker really embeds herself with this crew. And they're they're all real people aside from Shia LaBeouf. Um, the the girl protagonist she met on a beach, I think in Florida, and just asked her if she wanted to be in this film. It's amazing for that the 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 authentic feel that she captures. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, I will seek it out. I'm sure it's available on one of the streaming platforms I pay for, except that it's probably not, and it'll be like two ninety nine rental, and I'll be like, I pay hundreds of dollars every month for this fucking streaming <laughs> shit, and I still have to pay more to rent the shit that I want to see. Come on. Um, All of the good films are, it seems, are like two ninety nine, and then like, I think they just want you to like scroll for three hours and. And get disgusted. Just settle on the something or turn it off. Thing. <laughs> I miss the video store, though. I know. I feel like such an old person saying this. I just liked browsing because you'd have to, like, actually get up and get dressed. Right. To do a little browsing. And, and you'd also, like, you'd encounter people in the store who were, like, on the same wavelength. Just kind of like having it having a schlubby day, right? And it was it was cool. There was like a camaraderie, a schlubby camaraderie, <laughs> and and you or you both orbit around like the Fellini section. <laughs> what was <laughs> the that tour section? TLA I'm was that the TLA? TLA, yeah, yeah. Center City. Oh man. And then if you're feeling really furtive, there's the the porn section. I never. <laughs> I never got that low at that point in my life, but nor yeah, there bold. was that <laughs> nor bold. Yes. 
Yeah, there's something about it. that the, the camaraderie and schlubbiness, I think, has just been replaced by the internet. Now everyone is a schlub in a fucking chat room or something. I don't know. But it's nice to see a human tangibly. Um, maybe the, maybe it's, it's the human connection you're missing. Yeah. There was also, like, the, the clerk who you presumed knew something about cinema and you could have a chat or not. They could just quietly judge you. Right. Cause you're I always feel like... feeling quietly judged. <laughs> yes. Well, that could, I don't know what, what could replace that. How could we replace that on Netflix? <laughs> I, you know, it's going to be some sort of like, join a random other person who's browsing Netflix and then it would be some <laughs> digital recreation virtual reality that doesn't actually really approximate the real thing very well and leaves you even feeling even more hollow than you did before you had that idea <laughs> but not we to need be that dreadful we need we we so need that it's like our our digital experiences are so like containerized yeah to borrow a phrase from computer networking (laughs) containerized they're they're just sort of like the human element has been cut out of it and and replaced with creepy copywriting like oh we're gonna miss you dan like oh yeah i know like oh who who are you by the way and where were you like this whole time everything's a bot you were spying on me exactly on everything i watched and everything i and how long i watched it to sell me something else yeah and like there's people when when you go out to see a film which i haven't done in many many months clearly you go with a with a bunch of people and it's it's an anonymous social experience but we didn't realize how important that was until it was cut out in the name of efficiency and profits for you know these what are essentially technology companies people don't even realize it though and people embrace it i i a friend was like you still go out to the movies well yeah what you don't no, why would I go out to the movies? I have everything I could ever want to watch at home on my screen. <clears throat> Meanwhile, that same person is like all consumed by like the fucking cable news or something else. Like it's like as long as as long as you're glued to your couch, you're gonna. I don't. I, I'm having a hard time articulating what I'm trying to say, but like. When you take away that human element and that human interaction, you become so much more susceptible to all the other nefarious underpinnings of techno-capitalism. Yeah, well said. The conspiracy theories. Oh my God. Yeah, it's just just like (laughs) we need more reality checks throughout the day. Right. Right. Because we live in a media landscape that's 
more and more consolidated to the point where you you know this is i mean well documented stuff the echo chamber of and course whatnot. yeah i mean I, I just think it's particularly illuminated obviously during during the pandemic too, the sort of importance of it. I, I don't want this to be the new reality. I went to like, I attended a fucking a meeting the other night virtually in a zoom meeting. And it's a screen full of boxes with people's faces. And it's, it feels like the future and it's great that we can connect in this way. These tools are really great that we've achieved as human beings, I guess. And though, it's unnerving and unsettling and actually surreal. Mm-hmm. And I don't like it, man. I guess what I'm saying is I don't fucking like it. I want to see people in person. And um, I think less and less people are aware that they want to see people in person. Yeah. I, I guess pe- some people are are satisfied with the substitutes, but I, I think they're probably the same people who stopped never going really, to the theater. Yeah. And never yeah. really had much of a desire to get out of the coffin. Right. And see what, see what else is going on, like outside of their immediate environment. So, but I think this, I'm glad this technology is here because it, I don't know how else I'd be surviving during the pandemic. Right. At the same time, I feel like it's a, it's a grand experiment in how isolated we can f- be as a semi-functioning society. I wouldn't say we're a functioning society right now, Mm-mm. but it's it's a test. It's like, can we colonize Mars? Can we colonize the Moon? Right. If we if Earth becomes untenable. Because we have this technology that would allow us to be remain social animals under totally isolated conditions physically, can we do it? Yeah, and that's what we're that's what we're sort of like experimenting on right now. And it it is really unsettling to think about the long term implications and ramifications of this. I, of course, I, I mean, we can do it. Why wouldn't we do it? Why won't? everybody work from home. I mean, we are completely off the rails of what I intended to talk about and that's totally fine. <laughs> but like we I so I wrote a pilot and um someone was like, "Well, you got to get some some covid shit in there. You got to get some, you know, isolation shit in there and some masks and stuff." And I was like, "Why though? I don't I don't that's not part of the story." <laughs> But like now that we're living it, I mean, we will just be pushing farther and farther into it. That's actually not related to what you were saying at all. But yeah, I mean, if we could all just live in little bubbles like fucking Wally, which I never would have watched, but I have a five-year-old, um, they will they will keep trying to to get us to do that. Why would the office building ever return? Why would a physical workspace ever return if we could just fucking? Did you see that? Um, that most, I don't know if it's the most recent Terry Gilliam movie, but it's a Terry Gilliam movie with Christoph Waltz. The name of it's escaping me right now. Um, Brazil? No. <laughs> Christoph Waltz, I don't think, was a real professional actor when Brazil came out. Um, or maybe he was, but he certainly wasn't known. 
he oh, what the fuck is the name of this movie the zero theorem it's called and it's um it's uh it's a, obviously a dystopian near future but everybody works in these like little pods and they're near each other but they're completely isolated from each other and um yeah i mean we're just fast approaching as maximum physical isolation or at least we're trying it out I mean, if it proves to be more efficient economically, there's absolutely no reason why corporate America wouldn't embrace it. I know. But it, but if it if it turns out that workers can't be supervised in in more sort of like intensely supervised workplaces, then they'll have them come in person. Or if in I mean, in some industries, um, it helps to have have that face-to-face constant back and forth so they'll 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 resume the uh the the, i don't think that the office is is going to be a thing of the past i mean it certainly will be for the next year Um, oh that's for sure the next 12 months i think um some of the tech companies are like, yeah, you could work from home. I think Twitter was like, you could work from home forever. Um, really? Wow. Yeah. You never have to come back to the office type of thing. Well, I mean, why wouldn't they? Their bottom line becomes a lot lower, higher. I don't know what bottom line is. I only went to business school for six months before I dropped out. <clears throat> what? When did you go to business school? <clears throat> Dude. Fresh out of high school, I went to Penn State for a year. Oh yeah, <laughs> I studied business for a year. Um, I was. This is gonna sound like the the action of a crazy person, but I I pulled out my senior year yearbook the other day because I was trying to recall like what the fuck was I like. I know I I know I was a maniac in high school, and I know I was fucking off a lot in high school. Um, but what, what are some of these stories that I can't remember? Anyway, I pulled out a yearbook and it's like some of the messages are like, they'll end with like, I look forward to the day that you're a CEO of the company you want to run and you know, whatever. And somebody else was like, it's going to be great when we run fucking wall street or some crazy shit. Like I, there's such a dissociation between whatever it was that I mean, whatever, obviously I was 17, but it's fucking strange that like my sliding doors would have been like a McMansion in Hoboken or some shit. Was that like a, a character you were trying on at that age? I didn't even know what trying on characters at that age was. I think it was just, uh, you know, cause I was a, I was like an arts kid for part of my earlier youth. And then when I got back into the public school system, um, I I was young, you know, I'd skipped a grade, so I was younger than everybody and I was real fucking anxious and I needed to fit in and I needed to um definitely not feel like I was uh more alienated than I already felt by being younger than everybody. And um yeah, I stopped like theater and stuff like that and embraced like, you know, sports. And I'd always played sports alongside the creative arts, but um, I like, you know, tried to hang out with jocks, even though I wasn't like fucking, but then I like hang out, hung out with like the smart 
jocks. And then it just seemed like business was the thing. I don't know. At one point, I wanted to, like, do political science. I was like, I would be a really fucking good lawyer or or politician. Like, I don't know if I wanted to ever be a politician, but I was like, I could be a good lawyer because I know that I could argue a case. And I think that it might have come from cinematic depictions of lawyers so maybe what i always wanted to be was an actor but then one this one family friend for whom i had a lot of respect was like no nikki you don't want to you don't want to go into political science you got to do something practical go to business school go get an mba go to wharton and get your mba in five years of course i didn't get into penn because i fucked off and smoked weed and drank my entire senior year but i did get into penn state uh as a business undergrad yeah, I just had no idea about anything. And I, I guess I still don't. But it's definitely 20 years of um, ambling. Yeah. But yeah, business it's... school, man. I could have fucking... I could be living in Hoboken right now instead of toiling over what may or may not be a worthwhile screenplay or song or poem. I'm writing poetry. What the fuck am I doing? I'm writing poetry, like... Oh, cool. How self-important is that? Oh, that's great. I'm just trying to... Scott, you know... (laughs) Scott was like, you know, just... Make sure that you're not, like, feeling like the creativity can only come out in one way. Because, you know, I was really focused on the music for a while. And he was like, you know, do other things. Sketch, write, prose, like whatever. Just don't box yourself into like, well, I got to make this album. I got to record this album because then I'll have an album and I'll sell, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. But yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm just trying to pursue the arts in full, in earnest. Um, yeah, I've, I've always had a a soft spot for the for the person who feels a kind of who starts off on a sort of normal trajectory and then just eventually, I mean, is riven with conflict, drops out, joins up with the hippies or the refuseniks or whoever at the time is, <laughs> is really just like, no, we don't want to do that. We, I mean, we're, we're going to get drunk and try to paint or whatever. Uh, I had some friends who were sort of on on that same trajectory. I had a friend whose father really pressured him to play football, and he did. Hmm. Pressured his sons to join the military, and some of them did. Wow. And he he actually went to art school, and it and that must have come as a shock to his father. He this this is a a person who turned me on to David Lynch's eraser head. Oh wow. When I was like 18 and I thought it was, I had no point of reference. I thought it was like totally batshit. <laughs> so this, this guy was like playing at being a jock, playing at normalcy, but he was, he was really interesting and kind of disturbed. Uh, I don't. I don't think you would mind me saying, saying that. <laughs> you don't and think so he you would mind of, you saying that? You said. I don't think he would mind me saying that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> he probably in, embraces the deranged 
qualities of himself. Yeah, but but just someone having, I I understand and sympathize with like having that dual identity. Like you want to you want to impress your your people who are more conservative or pragmatic, but you're not really gonna do that in earnest, and you, you're eventually gonna either flame out or drop out of the rat race and figure something else out. Yeah, I, I think for me, I, I strived for so long to be normal. Like I had this obsession with like what is normal, which is so fucked up and, and like something that I can correct for the next generation. Um, but yeah, I was like, well, that's nor it's normal to do that. These are the normal things. These are the, um, I mean, I think it was just a real fear of getting beat up, man. I just didn't want to get my ass kicked. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that was, that, that was a real thing. And at that age. Yeah. I mean, bullying, I feel like is still a real reality, but it was definitely like, physical like you will just get beat up you will <laughs> someone will just punch you um there was always a yeah. threat of physical harm um which i was trying to you know my dad was like this tough guy and i couldn't fight so i was like well if i just surround myself with protectors then you know i'll never get anyway. yeah I, I did the same thing i i didn't have to um be be the aggressor myself because I was surrounded by maniacs. Right. <laughs> who I was kind of friends with. Right. Anyway. But I was a shit talker though, you know, I was a shit stirrer. Like I would stir the pot and then like when it came to it, like I would always try to make sure I got out before I had to scrap. Like I would talk <laughs> shit and I would like um irritate and annoy and um heckle (laughs) yeah we grew up a different way than um than the next generation will grow up or maybe not maybe it's just our maybe it's just our um i don't know i'm sure there are people who are still growing up the same way that they feel like they need to surround themselves with maniacs to not get beat up but well it's definitely like a the toxic masculinity was swirling through my circle of friends and we we just thought that that was a good way to solve your problems or or settle your differences Uh, yeah definitely i've only been in like one fight in my life and i had to get really drunk and i didn't even throw a punch because i got on top of the person and i just felt so bad i was like i can't punch this person i'm not even that angry also i don't want to hurt him so fucking soft i've always been soft (laughs) (laughs) Just in... Yeah, I've never been able to punch someone in no. the face. I, I, ha- I have dreams where I'm like, where I keep missing and my arm keeps like drawing itself yes. back. My arm locks up. My breath. I can yeah. never actually throw the punch. I mean, and I wonder, you know, my oldest sister, there's this like story, this legendary story of my oldest sister being bullied every day day after day this girl would like steal her lunchbox or some shit she would do something 
And my dad, as legend has it, was like, you know what you're going to do? Next time she does it, you're going to square up and you're going to punch her in the face as hard as you can. (laughs) And the next day, on the way to school, when this girl was bullying my sister, my sister squared up and punched this girl in the face as hard as she could. And the girl never bullied her again. And I never had that moment. And I wonder how that's affected me. Like that moment of like standing up for yourself in earnest in that way, I feel like is life defining. <laughs> and I, I never did that. I always cowered away. Well, you can stand up for yourself in many ways, not just physically. I know. I know. The pen is mightier than the sword. But you'll have to talk to Scott about that. And I will. I'll let you know how my next conversation with him goes. Thank you for uh, chatting with me. It's it's fun as always, um, and uh, yeah, likewise. And it it's nice to have a kind of formality to it. Then we can because sometimes you have to ask follow up questions like, "Really, you went to business right. school?" <laughs> so forth. Totally. All right, man. Well, enjoy the uh, enjoy your waning days in Florida. Yeah, I'm not going to miss but these in, plates. Enjoy those perennial tomatoes while you can. All right, take care. All right, amigo. See ya. Peace.